right, let's go ahead and get started. How do I know God? How do I know God? That is a question which has long plagued mankind. And even more than that for us in this room, it is one of the calling cards of what we would consider evangelical Christianity is that we want to know God, really know God, not just know about him. How many of you have at least heard of and or read parts of J.I. Packer's Knowing God here? Okay, so J.I. Packer offers some, perhaps my favorite comments on this topic in his book, Knowing God, uh, when he compares knowing God with knowing a horse. It is clear to start with that knowing God is of necessity a more complex business than knowing another person. Just knowing my neighbor is a more complex business than knowing a house or a book or a language. The more complex the object, the more complex is the knowing of it. Knowledge of something abstract, like language, is acquired by learning. Knowledge of something inanimate, like Ben Nevis or the British Museum, comes by inspection and exploration. These activities, though demanding in terms of concentrated effort, are relatively simple to describe. But when one gets to living things, knowing them becomes a good deal more complicated. One does not know a living thing till one knows not merely its past history, but now it is likely to how it is likely to react and behave under specific circumstances. A person who says, I know this horse, normally means not just, I have seen it before, though the way we use words, he might mean only that. More probably, however, he means, I know how it behaves and can tell you how it ought to be handled. Such knowledge comes only through some prior acquaintance with the horse, seeing it in action and trying to handle it oneself. In the case of human beings, the position is further complicated by the fact that, unlike horses, people keep secrets. They do not show everybody all that is in their hearts. A few days are enough to get to know a horse as well as you will ever know it. But you may spend months and years doing things in company with another person and still have to say at the end of that time, I don't really know him at all. We recognize degrees in our knowledge of our fellow man. We know them, we say, well, not very well, just to shake hands with intimately or perhaps inside and out, accordingly, according to how much or how little they have opened up to us. And so J.I. Packer goes on to say that one who is far transcendent to us, God is far transcendent to us, God is superior to us, and Packer goes on to say that, let's say there was a king, or our little lovely late, late queen. We would not expect to just be able to walk up and to know them. We would expect that a transcendent higher ranking individual would have to take the initiation into knowing us. And so how could we ever blame God if he did not choose to enter into a relationship with us? It is God who must take the first step toward us if we are going to ever have any hope of knowing him. And this is perhaps one of the most major themes in the book of Second Peter that I'd like to draw out as we consider it from a macros macroscopic perspective. How do we know God? What does our life look like once we have come to know God? Are there people who look like they know God but don't? Uh, how do we know that God's promises for our future will actually come true? The first point in today's message uh, is who did God speak through there? Let's uh, have... Oh, we did, did we do, um, we didn't do stickies, did we? I'm sorry, that's on never me. That's on me. That's, sorry, my bad. Uh, somebody read Second Peter 2, 1. Call it out. Who's got it? Okay. Yes, sir. Second, my, my apologies, Second Peter 1, 1. My bad. Okay, I was like, sorry, I'm sorry. Simon Peter, a servant. 
Christ and goes to the chain of faith of equal standing with us, promised by righteousness by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. You might think, well, obviously it's Peter who wrote Second Peter. Um, but I am here to tell you, and I want to be completely upfront and honest with you, that no book in the New Testament has had a more difficult road into the canon, and I would say that no other book in the New Testament has had more doubts about Petrine authorship, Peter authorship, Petrine authorship, than Second Peter. Uh, let me provide you an overview of why there are concerns about authorship and canonicity. Uh, number one, there is somewhat of a lack of external attestation uh, to Second Peter in the early church. For example, one of the earliest canonical lists, what was the earliest canonical list to my church history folks? Starts with an M. The Muratorian Canon. Muratorian Canon does not include Second Peter. Um, it also doesn't include 1 Peter, Hebrews, or James, to give you a little bit of an idea. And there are books on the Muratorian Canon that are explicitly excluded. So it's just not there, right? And that's one of the things that scholars point out, is we don't have a lot of external attestation very early on. For example, one of the earliest um, references to it is uh, by Origen at the turn of the third century. And he comments that some people still have their doubts about it, if it's a legitimate Petrine work. Second, there is internal inconsistency of style between 1 Peter and 2 Peter. Both literary style and content differ rather significantly. 2 Peter is uh, a different kind of Greek, if you will. It's a little bit more flamboyant type of language. Um, and it is far more Greek and Hellenized in its way of thinking. Uh, and then third, historical doctri doctrinal items which would lend to a later dating of 2 Peter according to secular uh, scholarship. Peter refers to Paul's letters at the end of chapter 3. Scholars say, how could the early church have had a corpus of Paul's letters that early? That's too early. Peter probably died around 68 AD in Rome. Okay, 60s are way too early for us to have a group of Paul's letters. Uh, so the story we are told. Um, he refers to the death of early church fathers. Is he talking about early church fathers, like the first century people? Okay, that would indicate somebody other than Peter wrote the book. Uh, so what do we do with all these options? There are three main positions. Uh, first, Second Peter is a forgery, and the early church had no idea. That is one position, which is pretty commonly maintained. Uh, second option is that Second Peter is a pseudonymous work in a testament style of literature. Not a, we're not familiar with apocryphal literature or um, apocalyptic literature very much. We're also not very familiar with testamental literature. Uh, there's something called the Testament of Moses. There are different things like this. In the idea, the idea of it is this. Famous person, big teacher, dies. Somebody else writes a letter on their behalf. They know they're about to die. You see that in the end of chapter one here. And it's sort of like a last moral impetus, a last, like, this is what they would want you to know. Everyone who receives the letter knows that it wasn't actually by Peter in this case. Um, but so it's not like a lie it's a different kind of literature that's what some people argue for I'm, I don't think that holds and there are some good reasons that, that doesn't hold but that is one of the main ways that evangelicals particularly can say oh no it can be in the bible that's fine and also not throw it out as like this is a complete forgery and the early church had no idea it's not inspired that's sort of like the 
middle ground, you can have your cake and eat it too, which gets very inconsistent very quickly. The third option is what we will take here is that it is an authentically petrine work. Um, we are we are taking this um, to say that there, I'm gonna, I'm gonna make some really brief comments. It kills me to do what I'm about to do, but it, I'm just gonna give you the, the quick on it. Um, first, there's substantial reference uh, to Second Peter in other early church works. Uh, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's explicitly quoted as scripture until Origen, who he does, uh, they do it, he does it like six times in his writing, but it is referred to um, in the Gospel of Peter, which was considered apocryphal, but what that does is show us that there's literary dependence down the chain. It is a very early document, um, and so what I cannot do for you here is prove that Peter wrote the book, right? I can, that is impossible to prove that Peter wrote the book. What I can do is prove that it is very possible that Peter could have written this book, and we have no other reason than to think that Peter wrote this book. And quite frankly with you, I would trust the early church's consensus on the topic more than modern scholarship, if for no other reason than the highly literary trained people like Origen, who weren't gonna have their wool pull, the wool pulled over their eyes, that he was recognizing that there were doubts about it. It is more likely that they knew who wrote this than we would 2,000 years later, okay? That's just my, my personal bias on this. Contrary to what many modern scholars believe, I think it is manifestly evident that the church was not okay with pseudonymous works. And that is one of the reasons that Second Peter took so long to get into the canon. Because guess what? Peter's a big figure. A lot of people like to write stuff saying, hi, I'm Peter, and then fill in whatever they want. I think that's one of the main reasons it was so slow getting into the canon. You can even think of Second Thessalonians where Paul says, there's letters going around. Don't you know, don't get deceived. Some of them say they're by me, but they're not. And what's ironic is that some people think that Second Thessalonians was pseudonymous. Well, that that's horribly inconsistent, right? A pseudonymous work saying don't accept pseudonymous works. It's at least consistent with the early church's position that we don't accept pseudonymous works. We actually have to have it by an apostle or a close companion. Um, so by the time we get to Origen, 300 AD, he's quoting it freely as scripture. Then we get to Athanasius, and we love Athanasius don't we? I mean, and, and when he makes his festal letter, he includes it in the canonical list that we tend to follow today. And if you know Athanasius, you know why I would tend to trust his judgment on the matter. Furthermore, I think the stylistic things can be very easily accounted for in the same way that you writing a school paper is not the same as you writing a text message to your friend. And there are reasons to be flamboyant in one that you would not be in your school papers. I, I mean, just knowing some of how you guys text in this room, I would love to see an <laughs> academic paper written the way you guys text me. It would be horrible. And we would find that there are 17 Julias in the world and five Vickies out there writing pseudonymous works in her name because of the cross comparison between her types of writing. So all that to say, Second Peter's real. Peter wrote it. He teaches us how to know God. Here's what I would like to spend a little more time on, though. The literary dependence between Jude and Second Peter. Um, open your Bibles to both Second Peter and Jude and sort of have a finger um, within each passage there. Uh, I might even recommend one from each hand. A finger from each hand would be helpful since you can flip back and forth faster. What I want you to do, um, since you'll inevitably be bored with me at some point in this next hour, what I want you to do is to flip back and forth between Second Peter and Jude and see the incredible similarity. Like, those are the same words kind of similarity. I'm going to throw out a few references for you. Uh, Jude 4, cross-reference with 2 Peter 1 through 3. Jude 5 through 7, Peter 2, 4 through 9. 
Jude 8 through 10, 2 Peter 2, 10 through 12. Jude 11, 2 Peter 13 through 16. Notice how I'm just going forward in each book, and they're very similar all the way down. Jude 12 through 13 parallels 2 Peter 2, 17. Jude 14 through 16 parallels 2 Peter 2, 18. Jude 17 through 19 parallels 2 Peter 3, 1 through 3. So th uh, as you just scroll through these, you're going to see very similar phrases and stuff all through. Uh, it, it's, you don't even have to read it very detailed. It's just overwhelmingly there. There is obviously some measure of literary dependence between the two. That's obvious. Now, there are three options with what we do with that. First, uh, Jude borrowed from Second Peter. Second, Second Peter borrowed from Jude. Or third, they both borrowed from some common source that we don't have today, a Q, if you're into the gospel sort of text criticism. So those are the three options. The majority of modern scholars take the position that Second Peter borrowed from Jude, since they think Second Peter was written later, right? So that, I mean, that kind of makes sense, right? If you think Jude's written earlier, then you would assume that Second Peter was the one borrowing. But there are other scholars who take a minority position, but I think it's a, I think it's a good position as well, that um, that Jude borrows from Second Peter because in um, let's see here, I don't remember the reference, whatever. At the end of Jude, it says it's quoting from the apostles and then quotes Second Peter, which is a pretty good indication that Jude's borrowing from Second Peter. But let's go back to the other position. Notice that Second, uh, that uh, yes, that Second Peter only has content in that chapter two, pretty much, right? If if Jude were borrowing from Second Peter, don't we find it a little odd that he didn't use some from chapter one and some from chapter three? Why is it only in that one chapter? So it would indicate that Second Peter has expanded on it. You know, and so the debate goes. I don't really care. The reason I bring this up is the interpretive points. Here's what's going to be very important as we go through Second Peter. We get to a sticky text in Second Peter. What does that mean? That's really confusing. Okay, turn over to Jude and look at a parallel text in Jude and see what Jude has to say about the same thing. And so what I, what I bring this up for, uh, to say is that as hermeneutics go, it is critical that we allow scripture to interpret scripture. And we have an awesome opportunity to do that here because we see clarifying details over in Jude. And it, it shows how these passages were meant to be understood. I say this because at times I will, I'm going to use Jude as the context for the basis of my interpretation. I think some of it's going to blow your mind. I want to offer that that's a legitimate move hermeneutically. It's the same topics all the way down Jude, all the way Second Peter, just sequentially moving down. You can set them side by side as some of the commentaries do and draw lines and see the same words, talking about a lot of the same things, okay? All right, very good. Looking back to our text now, um, back in verse 1, we have Simeon Peter. Simeon Peter, depending on your translation. Um, this is a Hebrew way of saying Simon, which if someone was attempting to copy Peter, pretty poor attempt to copy first Peter considering he gets it wrong in the first word considering first Peter opens with Simon Peter second Peter opens with Simeon Peter but nevertheless so there's some element of Jewishness that Peter's opening with by using for whatever reason some Jewish influence in his name and he goes on to say something very similar and my wardrobe choice for this evening is uh, you know appropriate Duasi Su Christau um, he is a servant of Christ. That's a classic, classic opening to a letter. But he also throws in something else. He also throws in the force of apostolic authority, which is ready to confront the false teachers. He is qualified to speak on how one comes to know God. So let's, let's move into our second point regarding who is telling us how to know God. 
Peter was a changed man as a result of knowing God. There is debate over whether this verse means the faith of equal standing, as in the generation that's about to happen has equal standing with the apostolic generation, or, and this is the way I would lean, just ever so slightly, not going to get into it, I think he's saying that Gentiles have equal standing in the faith with Jews. And, and I mean, it doesn't really matter um, which way, because the point is the same. You can either live in 60 AD, or you can live in 2022. You can be a Jew, or you can be a Gentile. But in Jesus, we have all the same standing. Moving to our next point, who God is. Why do we have the same standing? Verse 2. Somebody read verse 2 for me. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. It is not our righteousness, but rather the righteousness that Jesus gives, uh, uh, that Jesus provides, that gives us all this equality within the household of faith. This verse right here is characteristic of the high Christology that we see throughout 2 Peter. The Greek construction here is such that Peter isn't describing two different persons of the Trinity. Peter says that Jesus is God and Savior, right? It's not like God and then Savior Jesus. It's God, Savior, both of those are Jesus. And, and that's one of the highest statements of deity that we get in the New Testament. It's one of the most explicit that Jesus is God. Think with me here, though. Peter is originally a mainly Jewish apostle. Paul's the God of the Gentile. Peter's the God of the Jews. Okay? Then we have Peter, who is writing from Rome, probably here, a Gentile city, uh, saying that we have equal standing of Jew and Gentile because of Jesus, who is God. Peter's the same man who declared that Jesus is the Son of God, and Jesus said that this was only possible because the Father revealed this to him. And then on the other hand, we have one of my favorite passages in the New Testament. Um, it, can somebody read uh, Galatians 2, 11 through 14? Who's got Galatians 2? Got Perfect. Thank you. I'll, I'll talk while you find. This is that hilarious text where Paul is defending his apostolic authority, but in doing so, references that he was willing to confront Peter. And what did he confront Peter over? Jew and Gentile relations. Because all of a sudden, Peter was like, uh -huh, that's funny, I'm actually not going to eat with Gentiles. Go ahead. Uh, the verses again. Uh, Galatians 2, 11 through 14. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before a certain man came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when he came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before, the, before them all, if you, thought a Jew lived like a, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? So... Peter sort of drops off the scene in Acts after that. We don't really ever get to hear what happened of Peter. We just get this glimpse from Paul. But I think it's pretty obvious that Peter repented and was fully embracing the Gentile Christians at this point. He's writing from a Gentile city. He's probably going to die in a Gentile city. He's writing to Gentiles, and he's saying we have equal standing. So what I, what I see here is that Peter is a changed man because of who God is. Um, God the Father granted him the faith to say that Jesus was God. Then Peter continued to be changed by knowing 
uh, God to say that everyone is welcome at the table. Knowing God changed Peter. And this is a core conviction for Peter. Peter is a changed man because of who God is. Jesus is God. And that's going to permeate the book, right? Peter's like about to say, if you really know God, you're going to be different. I, I can't help but see in these first few verses, Peter is different because he really knows God too. In verse 2, I want you to begin to pick up on the you and us language versus the they and the them language. Peter will continually set up two groups, which he sees as distinct from one another. One is truly saved, the other is damned. Both, however, claim to know God. How can we know who's right then? Who really knows God? This is precisely what Peter is saying here too. He uses epignosis. Uh, gnosis means to know. The epi intensifies it. Intensifies it. Excuse me. Uh, Peter is saying that grace and peace only come from really knowing Jesus and experiencing him. We have the apostles and their true followers set against the false teachers and their converts. Both claim to know Jesus. So, who's right? Okay, and that's sort of where we start off at, uh, after this short little introduction here. Um, our third and final section for tonight, and where we'll spend most of our time, is what God has done. What God has done. Next time in our series, we will comment uh, to see that if we know God, we will have to see what we have done. That's if we're continuing this outline into next week. Tonight's what God has done. Next time's what we have done. We have all these things that we're supposed to do. But Peter perfectly aligns, or perhaps the other way around, the reform saying that I'm about to quote, perfectly aligns with Peter in saying that justification is monergistic, sanctification is synergistic. That is to say that justification, becoming saved, being saved, is by God's acts alone. Sanctification, growing, being a better person in very lay terms, is our cooperative effort with God. I mean, what I love, and I'm going to bring this out next time is when he says for this very reason add all these qualities Peter doesn't just say you know Jesus take the wheel make me more loving he says for this very reason add to your faith so yes growing in grace is synergistic we do it with God but becoming a Christian that's God and so tonight I want to look at what God has done um yes 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 perfect um Okay, we're going to break verses 3 through 4 down into an alliteration, because I'm back, right? I, I got the alliterations, I'm back with the alliterations. Uh, first, we're going to look at God's power, then we're going to look at promises, and then we're going to wonderfully look at what it means to be a partaker. How fun to figure out what partaker is. Okay, so God, power, power first. God has given you everything everything that you could possibly need for a godly life, period. Uh, you have eternal life, which makes you look more like God. We've had a lot of big words thrown around so far, and we're going to have more thrown around here in a few. But let's get practical for a second. I know that there are some of you who feel like you're just stuck in a loop. You continue to struggle with depression. You continue to struggle with lust and pornography. Uh, you continue to feel alone. Brother or sister, when you become a Christian... You were given everything you need by God. You don't need to try to receive a second blessing or a higher standing in Jesus. When you are in Christ, you have everything you need for life and godliness. If you really are a Christian, is it through knowing Jesus that you have what you need? Yes. Do you have everything that you 
uh, need for it? Yes. Do we have our own growing to do? Yes. Uh, do we have to work hard to become more like Christ? Yes. But did God actually bless us with everything that we could possibly need? Absolutely. You don't need entertainment or alcohol or sex or whatever else to satisfy. Christ can satisfy your soul and feed you eternally. As a matter of fact, Christ is the only one that has the power to feed us and to satisfy us in an eternal manner. How do we come to have this knowledge of him? God chooses you and calls you to himself. Uh, there is, this, this verse uses calls here. There is significant overlap between uh, the ideas of calling and election, considering that from the same, uh, they come from the same linguistic roots. Um, though it could mean either, the ESV opts for the either, I, I think that it's more proper to, uh, right in the middle of verse 3 there, who called us and ESV opts for two, I think there's a good case to be made that, uh, and ESV has a note on it, so obviously they're seeing it go either way. I think you try reading that with the word by in there. God, or sorry, well, same thing. But uh, the knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. By his own glory and excellence. It is by his majesty and yet by his moral goodness that we're able to enter into a relationship with him. The majestic king has called us and has been good to us. That's the sense of the passage, is what I think I would like to convey out of that to you. The majestic king, who has no business, you know, having to reach down to us, right? We, we couldn't feel offended. He's not a horse, right? We can't know him just like that. God is transcendent, and yet he has called us and has been good to us. Jesus' divine power has called us into the sweet knowledge of him and has given us everything we need, but more specifically... What is it that his glory and goodness has bestowed on Christians? Well, promises. God's promises. That's what his glory and goodness has bestowed upon us. My initial inclination when I'm going through this to interpret the passage is to ask, what promises? You know, like, that would be, you know, that's nice, right? That would help me figure out what I'm supposed to be hoping for here if I knew what those promises were. And yet Peter takes us in a different direction, which I think is actually quite helpful. Instead of initially asking what promises, he, he pauses to describe the beauty of the promises and, and reflect on the wonder of it all. The God of the universe who came in human flesh has bestowed all glory and power, with, sorry, who has been bestowed all glory and power has summoned me into a relationship with him. And as if that weren't enough, the king has said to me, who was once an enemy of that kingdom, that he wants to give me a hope, and he wants to give me a future. He wants to promise a future for you, for me. Peter is right to stop here and comment that they are precious and that they are valuable promises. That's where he stops first. And I think really his emphasis almost is that they're precious and valuable. Is God's word precious to you? Is it more valuable to you than anything in this world? Is Jesus the treasure in the field that you would sell everything that you have and chase after him and rejoice in that field? Imagine your life without one singular individual promise from God. That is tantamount to saying, imagine having a hopeless life because we would have no idea where we're going. So what are the content of these promises? Where are we going? 
it is my understanding that this particular word for promises is only used one other place in the entire New Testament and in the Septuagint, and it conveniently happens over in 2 Peter 3.13, if someone would be willing to read 2 Peter 3.13. Who's got me? Thank you. According to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. So these promises seem to be tied to the new heavens and the new earth. This is a big theme in the false teaching and things that Peter is going to be dealing with is that the teachers deny eschatology and sort of stuff like that. So it seems to fit that Peter would be saying the promise of new heavens and new earth. In other words, the promises are those of new creation. Uh, when these promises are fulfilled, what's going to result from it? On the positive side, we are going to become partakers in the divine nature. If you would like to expand your theologic dictionary today, I would encourage you to jot down the word theosis and uh, look up theosis. Uh, in some of your attached readings there on the handout, uh, there are um, works on Eastern Orthodoxy. Eastern Orthodoxy is the dominant player in the modern conception of theosis. However, theosis has been shared by all branches of Christianity uh, before moderns tried to intentionally slant it over to Eastern Orthodoxy, and I'll refer you to the readings on that. But it's a very helpful term, um, and it's not one that the patristic authors shied away from at all. At all. They loved the idea that uh, we have been partakers in the divine nature. Isn't that helpful, right? That, doesn't that just explain to you everything that you would ever want to know about what it means to have these promises? Um, allow me to offer my definition. I think it's a little complex, which is why I decided to pause and give a very specific stated definition. Partaking in the divine nature means that God gives us a new yet ontologically distinct nature in Christ that is progressively reflecting the image of God more clearly through sanctification ultimately culminating in our resurrection. Let me do it one more time a little bit faster. Partaking in the divine nature means that God gives us a new yet ontologically distinct nature in Christ that is progressively reflecting the image of God more clearly through sanctification, ultimately culminating in our resurrection. The idea of having a divine nature was used in Greek and Hellenized thought uh, all the way back to Plato and various others. For Greek thought, there was the divine realm, and then there's the material realm. Change, mortality belong to this material realm, but the spiritual part of man can transcend into the divine again through meditation on philosophy, for instance. Uh, keep reading in the passage. By being partakers of the divine nature, what do we escape? We escape the corruption of the world. Because of this, one of the commentators defines partaking of the divine nature as becoming immortal and incorruptible. It is because of the contrast between the divine nature and the corruptible world that has led some to believe that partaking of the divine nature is only ethical, okay, moral. What this means is that we share in the holiness of God, which is a communicable attribute, but nothing else. It is ethical only on this view. I'll come back to that. Here's where things kind of get interesting, though. Peter diverges from Greek thought when he says, that drive and desire are what have caused the corruption in the world. Greek thought said the world was bad because it was just material. And obviously you can get into Greek thought down that rabbit trail. But it wasn't because of desires and passions. It was because the material is bad and we won't have a resurrection because you know, the material world's bad, so why do we want to come back to a physical body? And Peter sort of diverges off this and says, no, uh, it's not that the material world is bad, but rather that the sinful desires that we have are making it corrupt. So let's ask yet another question. I just want to muddy these waters and then clear it up for you, hopefully. 
when do we get the fulfillment of these promises? On one hand, it seems like a new heavens, a new earth. These are future promises as very future oriented. Yet Peter speaks of it as already having happened. We have everything we need for life and godliness. We have escaped corruption. So let's back up and get the big picture here for a moment. Peter says that there are promises of new creation. That future promise will allow us to escape the corruption of this world and partake in the divine nature where there is no corruption. Yet, it has already begun to happen. New creation has already begun in us. Is that new creation an ethical change where we are more like God in holiness? I, <laughs> I would certainly hope so. Uh, yes, it absolutely is. Have we already received eternal life? Yes. Uh, but how have we received it? We have received the Spirit. We have become one with Christ. We are united to Jesus. I want to be very clear here. Humans do not mix with the divine nature. The creator-creature distinction of essence is still maintained. We don't become part of God or gods in that sense. Okay. To put it in other words, though, it is like being renewed in the image of God. Paul. Peter uses different terms, but if you're trying to map the two, that's about the best you're going to do. We take on the communicable attributes of God, holiness, uh, love, justice, you know, all these things that we're not going to be omniscient, but we do become more like God, okay? This is where Eastern Orthodoxy gets their conception of deification or theosis confused. For them, justification is a process where we progressively take more of the divine nature on. If justification is a process, then works and faith are involved, and I would say it devolves very quickly to a works-based salvation. But like Catholics, they don't see a line between justification and sanctification. Okay, It's all blurred up and mixed in one big pot. Now here's where it gets really complicated with Eastern Orthodoxy. They reject all legal-type terminology. The West is bent on words like justified and vindicated and you know all these very Pauline lawyery words. They're like Christian mysticism, okay? That's their specialty is we become more pure. We become more united with God. We partake more in the divine nature, but it's this messy process where faith and works overlap, and it becomes a works-based system and why it should be rejected in the patristic and Protestant recovery of the understanding of theosis and deification should be recovered in our time as well. So is it only behavioral? Is it only ethical changes? Hardly. Do our morals change? Yes, but so too are our minds, our affections, our desires, and even our future bodies are transformed. How does this happen? By having that intimate epignosis knowledge of Jesus. Everything about us changes, not because we work hard enough, but because of Christ. He is the perfect image of God into which we are being transformed by the Spirit and then eventually by our sweat as well. In Pauline language, we are one with Jesus. Here is the already and the not yet. We are already new creations in that we share in eternal life and in corruption because of our union with Jesus. And yet on the other hand, we say with Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, 50 through 51, that was supposed to be a sticker, my bad. 1 Corinthians 15, 50 through 51, or 55, excuse me, 50 through 55, I think would be a, a more apt reading. So I, I think you'll hear Peter in Paul a little bit, even though they tend to use different vocabulary to describe the same things. 1 Corinthians 15, 50 through 55 describes the future element of immortality and incorruption.
I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery, for we shall not we shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed in a moment in the twinkle of an eye at the very last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on the immortality. When the, imper when the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on the immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that was written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sin? So are we already raised to resurrection life with Jesus, united with him, having escaped the corruption of the world, and broken the chains of sin that once dominated us? Yes. Do we await final resurrection, perfect union with him, where everything is made right and sin and corruption are totally and finally condemned and where our mortal bodies puts on immortality? Yes. Okay? And so I think in Peter's context, he realizes it's here, and yet the promise is still for the future, and that's where he's going to take it to combat the false teachers. This really is the gospel then. No Christ. We have been given true apostolic testimony on how to know the Lord. We can become brothers and sisters side by side who are equals in this faith because Jesus, God in human flesh, came down to earth and lived the life we couldn't. If we have real knowledge of Jesus, then we will have grace and peace with God. How do we come to know God? The God-man who has been crowned king of the universe decided to give you everything we would need for a godly life. Jesus called us. He brought us to himself. We were once enemies of the king who have been welcomed into his realm. But, for whatever reason, he has chosen to elevate us even further by giving us promises of hope and a future. Future indeed, but the future promises began when you came to know him. You became one with the king. And when you, became, when you become one with the king, you don't leave unchanged, okay? Not only is that a theme for this book, but that should be the theme of our life. You leave those sinful desires behind because you have found someone who is so much more lovely to you. To the non-Christian, then, we proclaim, accept the calling of the Lord Jesus Christ. Hear his voice and live. Drink the waters of salvation that will refresh your souls. Come and see what promises the Lord has for those who love his appearing. To those who look like they know Christ, but in reality do not, we're going to address your camp more thoroughly next week. Um, at the very least, I want you to see where this pattern is going, though. If this is what God has done for me, then shouldn't I look a little bit different now? How do you know if you have really experienced his power, been uh, given promises and partaken in his nature? Well, have you escaped slavery to your sinful desires? Do you know that there is freedom in counting on Christ's righteousness and his works for your salvation and not your own? Uh, to the Christian, lastly, the obvious application is to live in line with our divine nature and stop sinning, right? That's where Peter's going to take this thing. I think the Petrine train is heading for the sanctification stop. That's the best on-the-spot alliteration I've ever done. Petrine train, sanctification stop. But I actually don't really want to make that application for this week. I don't, I don't want to pause there. Uh, 
Peter's going to do that for us, really, in the upcoming passage. Here's what I wish to say for the time being. Uh, Learn to know who God is, what God has done, and what he has promised to do. If you know the nature of God, what he has done in the past, and what he will do for you in the future, then you will be able to fight mental battles much more easily and much more successfully. Okay. Um, this is uh, this is just an off the off the cuff note, but this is actually how they designed their sermons. A lot of commentators think that this was sort of in a sermon form, just sort of made over into a letter. They talked about what God had done in past redemptive history. They talked about what God did in Messiah, and then they talked about what you need to do to prepare for Messiah's second coming. I mean, like this is this is what they did. There were promises of Messiah coming once. There were promises of the Spirit coming. Now we have promises of Messiah coming once more. How could you possibly have hope when your marriage that was so beautiful at first is now fallen on the rocks in hard times? How could you possibly have hope when you lose a child? I just read a post today about someone who had a miscarriage, and they said... You know, you just never think it would be you, right? How do you have hope when you lose a child in an unexpected sense? How can you have hope after losing friend after friend? Half the time it's your fault, half the time it's life's fault. And yet both of them make you feel bad, right? When, you, when it's your fault, you even feel worse. Um, and yet God, maybe this is just my experience, I hope it's not, but... And God turns around and blesses you in the exact area in which you failed. Maybe you failed in a relationship, and yet God turns around and blesses you with an even better one. And you're like, this, I, I'm getting more from God in an area in which you failed. And it's this most humbling gifting that you could ever imagine because it's so evident that you have failed there in the past, and yet you've been given so much more. How can you have hope when you feel like you're straying from Christ? Well, you can be confident in his return. May we never give in to nihilism, to depression, to anxiety, to hopelessness, to saying, eh, what's the point in life? Nothing's knowable, nothing's doable, nothing's achievable. I've tried my best, and that's it. I can't go on any further. Do we grieve and do we sorrow? Certainly. But do we have hope of the dawn? Absolutely. And why do we have hope? Because we know Jesus, right? If you're at the end of your wits, if you're at the end of your strengths, then, I mean, that's the same as what it's going to be for all of eternity, right? If you want to think that you can get into eternity on God's strength and you believe that and confess that with the church, sure, that's great, but it's the same for us now. We can't make it through this life on our own power either. We have to draw on the power. It's not just some mystical power. though That is there, and I think that's real. It's the cognitive power to recognize that I'm not damned to an eternity, right? Like, it's not just even a neutral going to the grave and dying. There is a hope of a bliss for me on the greater tomorrow in the future. Here are these same themes. Knowing Jesus, already not yet, future resurrection in Paul that should be the cry of our heart over in Philippians chapter 3. Philippians 3, 7 through 14, and I'll take this one. But whatever gain I had, whatever gain, and I, let's stop right there. <laughs> 
whatever, anything in life, money, relationships, whatever, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God, Christ, that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on. That's all you can do, right, by the way? If it's, it's give up or press on. Uh, but I press on to make it my own because <coughs> Christ Jesus has made me his own. And that's the order, right? Christ Jesus makes you his own, and you press on to make Christ yours. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Amen? Okay, let's pray. Father, I want to thank you um, for allowing us to get a glimpse into what it means to know you and to start to know what it truly, really means to look like and to know you ourselves. And I thank you that you have preserved the apostolic word for us to tell us that we should press on, that we, we have everything we need. We have all the power to become part of the family because that's your power. We have everything that we need to have hope in life because of the promises that you've given us. And those promises means that they mean that we get to partake in you and we get to be united with Christ. Do we work on that? Do we have to work out what it means to be partaking in the divine nature and escaping this corruption? Yes, Lord. And Lord, I trust that your word will show us how to do that in the future. But God, for this week, I just thank you that you have allowed us to escape, that you have given us freedom, and that this is not something that we have to do on our own, but something that you have already done for us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.